Now, Luke 22, and I want to begin reading at verse 21 down to verse 34. Hear the word of the Lord. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the son of man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader, like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon. Behold. Satan has determined or demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. Amen. I want to talk uh, three things today uh, from the really the final instructions that Jesus is giving before the the arrest. And uh, and that is this. Number one, Jesus talks about betrayal. In verses 21 to 23, he talks about greatness in verses 24 to 27. And then he talks about perseverance in verse 28 to 34. Betrayal, greatness and perseverance. Now, if that doesn't sound like an epic movie, I don't know what does. Betrayal, greatness and perseverance. Um, Jesus, of course, is in the upper room. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. I think I also showed you that. He served a another cup first that often gets overlooked. I think it was the cup of blessing that uh, Jesus said he wasn't going to drink of because Jesus is entering now into his isolation and his desolation. He's heading towards the cross. He's get Jesus is is slowly but moving to a position of loneliness. 
Um, he, he's going to he's with his 12 in, in next week. He's going to be with his 12 minus eight uh, with a three as he goes further. And even from the three, he's going to be a stone's throw from the three. And then he's going to be arrested. He's going to be alone and he'll be on the cross with nobody but malefactors on his left and right and people scorning him. In front of him and below. So Jesus here has some final instructions for the disciples before all of this takes place. And the first one is probably the most sobering of them because it is betrayal. It is probably one of the most difficult things for a human being to go through. Is is to be so wronged and so betrayed by somebody that is so close to you. That should have been your friend, that should have been your ally, that was part of your family, maybe. And for them to uh, betray you in some very intimate way is one of the most difficult things that a human being can go through. And Jesus here is telling his disciples that he, the son of man, is going to be betrayed. He is going to be abused by somebody that should be his friend, somebody that he has done good to since they've known each other. And and so Jesus here in verse 21 says, behold, the hand of one betraying me is with mine on the table. And the revelation is not who it is. But it is revealed to the disciples that it is one of the twelve. It's interesting that the disciples don't know who it is. And that is, I think, often been the case. When, when I have looked over my now 30 years of being a Christian, uh, over 30 years, um, I've been surprised who turned against the Lord when we had sweet fellowship together. We went to the house of the Lord together. We, we prayed together. Um, we, in, we went to church together. And, and now not only are they not walking with the Lord, but they're walking against the Lord. Um, I've, I've had colleagues in the ministry uh, turn away from the Lord. And, and I went to their ordination service. Uh, I, I was I was one of those who laid hands on them. And, and, and as a part of the presbytery. And, and it's one of the I think one of the most discouraging things for uh, for a Christian, for a pastor uh, is to see somebody that should be following the Lord Jesus Christ, renouncing Christ and going a different way. It's even worse than that. Not only is Judas going to renounce Christ, he's he's going to abuse Christ by having him arrested. He's going to betray Jesus. The, the, the secret place in Gethsemane that was known to Christ and the disciples, that kind of one secret garden where they could go and get away from everybody that was still within the vicinity of Jerusalem is going to be the, the place now where Judas is going to have Jesus arrested. 
He's not just going to open the secret up to outsiders, but he's going to use that as the very place to turn Jesus in and have Christ arrested. And so uh, this is something that was foreshadowed in the law. You remember in the Psalms that uh, we are told explicitly that the psalmist says that uh, he who you know shared bread with me has lifted up his heel against me, which I, I firmly believe is a prophecy speaking to Christ. I think that's why Christ says it's written in the Old Testament that he was to be betrayed. Uh, notice that. Jesus does say this is foreordained by God. It's been determined by God to happen. You see that in verse 22, for indeed the son of man is is going, meaning he's going to the cross. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be abused. He's going as it has been determined. Notice there that God is the one who has ordained this. But it's coming by way of the volition, the will of one of the disciples The instrumentality of it will be through Judas. Judas will be the one who betrays him. Notice here we see this theme also in Acts chapter 4 when the opening sermon is is preached here. the, The Spirit's been poured out and the apostles are preaching and they say, Truly in this city they are gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. There's that same language. The cross is predetermined. But yet there is human responsibility in it. Judas and the Jews and Pontius Pilate and Herod cannot argue that. They are to be excused because it was predetermined. We see something of the divine sovereignty coming together with human responsibility in this mystery of the cross. We see it also, don't we, in Acts chapter one, where we are told that Peter stands up in the midst of the hundred and twenty that are in the upper room after the resurrection And what does he say, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. That is here again, boys and girls, I want you to see God is the one who has said this is going to happen. This is a part of the plan of God. But notice here, he says it was foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And and that I think he's referring there to. Psalm 109 in that verse there. So the betrayal was certainly a part of God's plan. Didn't catch God by surprise. But yet Judas is responsible. I remember R.C. Sproul teaching and telling us when we were students that Judas probably on the day of judgment will probably try to make some excuse uh, that he can't be held accountable for what he did because of the sovereignty of God. If God has predetermined it, then I was just simply doing what I had to do. Um, and, uh, and of course, that is a specious argument 
and it won't stand, of course, on the day of, of judgment. Judas wanted to betray Jesus. Uh, and Judas did so out of his own will. The hand of the betrayer was at the table with Christ. And then Jesus says here, woe to that man. Notice here, even though it's predetermined by God, notice here that Jesus says, woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Notice that so that the, that Judas is responsible for this betrayal. When we have to take responsibility for our own betrayals of Christ. We, we cannot excuse the sovereignty of God for our own failures uh, before the Lord. Matthew says it. Luke, I don't know why, but Luke doesn't record it. Matthew, in his recording of that sentence, even has Jesus saying it would have been good if that man had not been born. Been better had Judas never existed than to exist and to do what he has done. Now, clearly here, I think by way of application, there's there's a sense that I think we should all pause for a moment, shouldn't we? Because we have a sin nature like Judas and we need to. I think we need to take stock. The, the failure of Judas is a warning to us all not to betray the Lord. I want to give you at least four things that I think we ought to watch for that Judas did not and failed to and fell into. Number one is this. I think Judas failed to watch against bitterness. Number one. Why did Judas, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, betray Jesus? Number one, I think I think Judas became disillusioned. I think he became bitter. I think you see this in a couple places. The the one place I think it most particularly is where Christ keeps telling his disciples he's the son of man is going to die. He's going to the cross. Remember, even Peter didn't like it. Peter says, God forbid, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. And I think Judas was, was became bitter that the, that the kingdom wasn't going to turn out like he thought it was. I think he had a very carnal expectation of what it meant to reign with Christ. And I don't think he was prepared for the amount of suffering that was going to come before the glory. He wanted just the glory. And he didn't want the cross. The cross always precedes the crown. And if you are unwilling to take the cross, you cannot have the crown. Judas wanted the crown. With, but not the cross. And so watch against bitterness. Watch the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, uh, watch out that the root of bitterness does not take hold of your heart, that you become disaffected with Christ. Because providentially, something is not turning out in your life the way you wanted it to turn out. The, the, that life is not going the way I wanted it to go. And that I, I am now becoming bitter about that. And I'm, I'm going to turn against Christ rather than, as Sarah Edwards said, with regard to the death of her husband, to, to learn to kiss the rod of the father's affliction. 
So we have to be on guard against that, especially, I think, as Americans that are used to getting pretty much whatever we want. We built a whole economy on that. <laughs> you get what you want or you go find another business or service who will get it for you. And that, I would argue that's part of the problem of the American church, too. People want what they want, and if they don't get what they want, and they don't hear what they want, they go and find somebody who will give it to them. So bitterness. Watch out for bitterness, number one. Number two, watch out for worldliness. Watch out for worldliness. Now, why do I say this? I think Judas had a problem with worldliness, too. Um, And we know this because the gospel writers tell us that he... And I'm going to use this for a couple different applications. But they told us he secretly stole from the treasury. So there was a covetousness about Judas that caused him to steal. And the Bible warns us about what, uh, and, and they put it broadly, it's not just money, but a desire for other things causes some people to spring up but eventually wither in the parable of the sower. Some spring up and wither because of persecution. But then Jesus says there's another group of people that spring up. But it's not that they wither when the sun rises, but they, their fruit is choked out by external things. So not only did I think Judas have a bitterness within himself, but it was that desire for other things that also led To the fruitlessness in his life. Number three. This goes along with it. Watch out against secret sins. Judas had a secret sin of stealing. And he wasn't dealing with that sin. Judas should have repented. He should have made restitution for theft. And he should have gotten somebody else to become treasurer. So that he wouldn't be put in a place of temptation. Judas didn't deal with secret sins. And it led to an outbreak. So that even though it was hidden from the other disciples. You know, Jesus says, somebody at this table is going to betray me. And you don't see anybody going, oh, I know who it's going to be. (laughs) You know, I know, I know, I know. Nobody, nobody knew. I mean, it was it was hidden from from them. You know, I believe that Judas performed miracles. There's when Jesus sent them out two by two, there's no hint in the scripture that everybody performed the miracles except for Judas. That meant that the Holy Spirit was pleased to use Judas, an unregenerate, unconverted person. This ought to uh, Sober us all that we can be used of the Lord, even bringing good to others, even bringing others to faith in Christ and still not be regenerate ourselves. That's why we have to be careful that we're not putting our trust in our ministry. In our usefulness for Christ. But we're putting our trust in Christ. There's no hint that everybody but Judas did a miracle and therefore, oh, the disciples knew, you know, oh, well, I, I could see that one coming because, you know, Judas, he could never seem to heal anybody. 
And I think Judas was used of the Lord to bring real healing to people. But still, in the end, he, he turned against the Lord. So don't let your past usefulness for the Lord cause you to turn away or you know, be a cover for you knowing the Lord. And then the, the, the last application, watch against hypocrisy and formalism. Watch against hypocrisy and formalism. Judas was going on. His conscience must have been probing him. His conscience must have been giving him a, a red warning light that he was ignoring. You know, it, it's not just at the end of his ministry that Jesus said he was going to be betrayed. He said that early on. So there, there was, there was a, a warning to these twelve that they might be one of the ones who betray him. And, and it should have warned Judas with these secret sins and continuing in these secret sins and yet carrying on as though all were well. This is why you and I have to take real inventory of our lives from time to time. This is, I think, one of the benefits of the Lord's Supper is it causes us to examine ourselves. Lest the table of the Lord become a table of judgment for us. We need to ask ourselves, how am I doing? Am I allowing a root of bitterness to get in my life? Am I allowing myself to become disaffected with Christ? Am I becoming disaffected with Christ's people? Am, am I allowing uh, myself to be disaffected with serving the Lord because I'm not getting what I want? Because I'm not getting my needs met? Uh, we see that a lot. You know, my needs aren't being met by the church. I'm going where my needs will be met. The son of man who you are following didn't come to be served. He came to serve. My kids aren't getting what I think my kids should get in the youth group. And so I'm going to go over here to this big church, you know, where they can get that. Really? Because that's what church is. What you can get out of it or what you can give. For Judas, it was what he could get out of it. He wanted money. He wanted prestige. He wanted honor. He wanted recognition. And I'm, I'm sure there was a part of Judas that loved the crowds and all the attention that were coming to Jesus and himself. I, I, I'm sure he was in some ways with that crowd when the crowd wanted to make him king after the feeding of the 5,000. I'm sure he was probably disappointed that Jesus didn't take that offer up. We see it elsewhere in Scripture. We see it with Esau. Sells his first birthright. I think we see it with Cain. He murders Abel. I think we see Saul. Um, you know, leaving the Lord, turning to spiritus at the end of his life. There's a tendency within us all because we're all sinners. There, there, there are little Judases within us all. There, there, there are all, all of us have this problem. It's only by the grace of God that we're sustained. It's only by God's grace that we're kept from falling headlong like Saul. But take stock of yourself 
And I preach that to myself as well. That we not become disillusioned with the Lord of glory and we betray him. Number two, not only is there betrayal, but there's greatness, greatness involved. It's interesting. Soon after the discussion that one of you is going to be the worst, they start fighting about who's going to be the greatest. (laughs) One of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to do something awful. And then they go out into the night and they're arguing who's going to be the greatest, who's going to reign with Christ, who's sitting on his right, who's going to sit on his left. What what is going on? Well, there so there's an argument here that breaks out. Now, no names are mentioned. We're all 12 of them arguing. Maybe. I have always suspected and this is, you know, conjecture on my part. I've always though suspected that Peter and John were at the head of this argument. And, and, and maybe James in there, too. And I'm sure the others piled on. But there, you get some hints, don't you? I mean, John is the one who's laying his head on Jesus's breast. Peter's the one who gets to walk on water, though. Peter's the one who answers the question, who do you say that I am rightly? I think it's really fascinating when you read John's gospel, because in chapter 20, John gives us that little hint, though he doesn't name himself by name. He's the disciple that runs faster than Peter <laughs> to the tomb. <laughs> um, also, you know, in John 21, you know, Peter is being told by Jesus, you know, that he's going to die. You know, they're, they're going to they're going to take you, Peter, where you don't want to go one day. And Peter's response is, well, what about him? You see this, got that sibling rivalry going on. Wait a minute. I have to suffer for you, but what about this guy? So you kind of get these little hints, I think. And, and then we know that, you know, John and James's mom tried to set the whole thing up earlier, you know, by going to Jesus and asking, you know, can John and James sit on your right and left? And and we know that the other disciples didn't like that, you know, that, that and so we've seen this before. And, and so uh, this was a problem um, in, in 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 the disciples. And it's a problem in our life, too, because we are born with that native fallen nature that wants to be served, that that wants to be in control, that that wants it all to be about me. And, uh, you know, I, I hate to say this, I've even seen it in seminary where rivalries uh, grow. You see it sometimes even in presbytery among different ministers. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I remember, I think I shared this with you, when I was a student at Reform Seminary, uh, every spring we had to elect officers for the next uh, academic year. And... I, I thought it really strange, given what Jesus says here about that the greatest among you shall become the least, that um, we had so many guys running for president. Nobody was running for secretary. So I said, well, I'll run for secretary. You know, I like being unopposed. And uh, <laughs> and, you know, you're going to win. You, if you don't, you're really in trouble. <laughs> But I thought, you know, this is really strange. If you really want to serve on the council, um, you know, why, why does everybody take door A here? And nobody's taking door C over here. 
There's a, there's a, oh, a complete opening here and nobody wanted. Everybody was running for president. Nobody, nobody wants to be taking the notes and running for secretary. And so it, we see it uh, in the church uh, today as well, that, that, the, that the desire for, for so-called greatness um, is often a very carnal desire. It's often regulated by the world's principles of what constitutes greatness. And isn't it interesting that that's how Jesus illustrates the problem, doesn't he? If you look in our text, notice in verse 25, Jesus gives us a couple of examples for us to think about. And he starts off with the world. He says he said to them, answering this problem of them arguing over who the greatest is, he says the kings of Gentiles lord it over them. So what does Jesus do here for you young children? I want you to understand this. What Jesus does is that he, he says, I want you to look at the world of unbelievers, world of idolaters, the world. That's that was the world of the Gentiles. Remember, the church still is almost exclusively combined to Israel, except for a few Gentiles here and there. So most of the world is regulated by different principles than Scripture. And in the world, man has authority by lording it over others or ruling sometimes and very often heavily. You know, you, you realize that we who live in a, a nation with relative civic liberty, I mean, this is this is the minority report in human history. Most people have never known freedom because their great men lorded over them. Uh, it's, it's, it's a relatively new thing where people say, you're not my Lord. You're my representative. And you work for me, not I work for you. So, but that's due to the influence, I think, of Christianity. We can talk about that another time. But, um, you know, Christianity has leavened its way around the world and, and things come good things by consequence of it. But back then, um, no, you know, you 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 were ruled. And if you didn't like it, well, you could get your head chopped off. Uh, or, or just, you know, go along with it. And, and that's how you exercise authority. And, and, you know, that's been the human history, isn't it? I mean, a guy gets to become king and what happens? Well, he gets assassinated and then the guy who assassinates him becomes king. And sooner or later, the servants turn on him and he's assassinated. And, and just this cycle of, of lording it over and taking by violence and force and, and ruling with severity over others. No idea of constitutional Liberties that we have as image bearers of God. So he says this. He says, it's not that way in my kingdom, though. My kingdom is is the very opposite. In the world, in the world of the devil, that's that's how it goes. It's by force. It's by violence. It's by, you know, you do it or otherwise. But it is not that way. Here, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way among you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like. And then he says, first, the youngest. And then he says, and the leader like the servant. Now, why does he say, first of all, you must become like the youngest? Well, all of us probably have some sense of that because we were all kids at one time and whether it was the neighborhood boys or maybe it was the girls from school, whenever there was a, uh, a group of kids, maybe with 
different age ranges, what did you do? Well, you tended to do kind of what the older kids said we were going to do. You know, if the older kids said we're playing kick the can tonight, well, what were we going to do that summer night? We're going to kick the can. You know, Uh, if we're playing manhunt because, you know, it was because the older kids said, hey, we're playing manhunt tonight. And the younger kids, you just you you go home or you you do that, you know, and um, you just follow along. So I think what Jesus is saying here is that those who are to um, be the great ones in the kingdom are going to be like those who are in many ways the youngest. They, they have that um, they don't have that position of authority and they're there just to help. They're there to participate. They're there to serve. They're not there because they want something new on their resume. They don't want to lord it over uh, others. So I think that's why he says you got to become like the youngest. I'm not saying he says you, that means you become immature, obviously. You know, uh, that's not what makes you great. But I think it's, here it's a, it's a disposition. I, I'm here to participate. Uh, I don't have to control what's going on. And then he says, you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servants. And then he gives the example. Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Now, what Jesus means by that is he means ordinarily in the world, which is it? And, it, and the course is it, the, the people that are at the table are the ones that are greater. The, the slave is the one who is serving. And, and Jesus says, but yet he says, I, though, am in the in the. Assumption is here, I who am greater, Jesus who is greater than his disciples. Nevertheless, Jesus is the one serving them at the, at the table, isn't he? Ordinarily, it's the slave, it's the servant who is serving those that are dining. But here is Jesus, he's greater than his disciples, and he is not having the disciples serve him. But he, as the head in the, of the church and as the leader of the group, he is serving. And so... Uh, you'll hear this today about servant leadership. I think it's a fine word. Um, I, I think um, there's some who are maybe overreacting against it because of its misuse a little bit. But leadership is is not self-oriented. Leadership is to be expended for the sake of others. So, for example, husband, you are the head of your home. Um, that That is true whether you are... Carrying out that headship well or not. You are the head of, of the home. But the headship is not for yourself. The headship has been given to, given to you so that you will exercise that authority on behalf of your wife and children. That you would serve them, particularly serving them, not only meeting their needs uh, materially, but also spiritually. That you would wash your wife with the water of the word. You would train up your children, commanding them as Abraham commanded his household to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just leave it up to the kids to when they're teenagers to decide. We, we say this is the way it is. This is the covenant. And uh, and we lead them. But we do so also by serving them. So Jesus here is saying that, um, that you know, we, we show leadership 
in, in the way we serve. There's a story that I read once, um, and I might not have the details all completely down, but there was a story I, I read many years ago that I loved. And it was talking about Ronald Reagan out at his ranch in California when he was president of the United States. And we were having that time period where we were um, trying to thaw the Cold War relations, you'll remember, with the Soviet Union. And Gorbachev was president at the time. And Gorbachev actually came out to Reagan's ranch on one visit. But the thing that stood out to me about that was that the um, writer of the article noted that Gorbachev thought it really strange. Reagan saw a snake in his pond for his horses. And Reagan, I guess, put on his wellies or whatever and went in and took care of the matter himself. And, 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 uh, and that just was completely foreign to Gorbachev. So here you have these two leaders. Gorbachev thought, that, that's ridiculous. In my country, I would have ordered somebody to go take care of that. But here is the leader of the free world saying, no, I, I will take care of it myself. I'm not going to ask somebody to do this that I'm not willing to do. This is my house, my ranch. I'll take care of it. I'm not going to ask some secret service agent to dispense with that snake. And, and I said, you know, that is, this is just a beautiful picture, though, I think of what Christ is saying, that we're, we are given this authority, but this authority isn't given to us so that we can just tell other people what to do. But we're there exercising that authority, even in what we do and in the way we lay down our life uh, for others, even if it's for our horses. Um, we're, we're there to um, serve. And, and I just thought, oh, that, what a great story that is, I think, illustrating uh, what Christ is talking about here. Um, one other thing, and that is in verse 28 uh, and following down to verse 34, we, we see the betrayal and we see Christ teaching on greatness. And then the last thing that I want to bring to our attention quickly here is the need for perseverance. Uh, because what's interesting is we get to verse 28 and he's telling his disciples that they're going to be with him in the kingdom. The glory is coming. They just have to be patient and wait. And so he says, you guys have stood by me in my trials. And he says, just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you're going to eat and drink with me in that kingdom. At my table. And you're going to sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then in verse 31, he deals with Peter individually. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That is, you need to persevere, gentlemen. There is a kingdom. I am going to go to the cross. I am going to suffer. I am going to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified. And on the third day, God will raise me up and I will enter into my kingdom and I will pour out my spirit that that kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. And you, as you advance that kingdom in my spirit's power, are going to participate in following me by way of death, taking up your own cross. But I want you to persevere because if you'll persevere to the end, you, you will be with me. But here, there's another reason to persevere in that, Peter, you're going to fall. And on that night, and I learned this from Sinclair Ferguson many years ago, he said, if we had been there with the disciples on that night, we would not have known who it was that betrayed Jesus. Was it Peter or was it Judas? 
And what made the difference between the two men? The difference was that Peter would persevere. Judas would have remorse over what he did. He would throw the money back in the temple, but he would commit suicide. Peter would have remorse, but Peter also would join that with repentance and faith in Christ. And would be restored by Jesus after the resurrection. And I want to say this by way of encouragement to those of you who in your Christian life have fallen in sin. Because I think Peter here represents a case study that not all who fail Jesus have fallen away from Jesus. You might be tempted to think, you know, I was a sinner and I came to Christ. And I, I, I was able to find forgiveness for all my past sins that I committed before I came to Jesus. But I've not been able to forgive myself of those sins that I committed since knowing Christ. You see, the, the sins which were forgiven before you came to know Christ are forgiven on the same basis as the sins committed after knowing Christ. It always was about Christ. It wasn't that my previous life was forgiven by faith in Christ and now I'm trying to do it on my works. I must look to Christ again after I've come to Christ. Peter, I've prayed for you. You're going to fall. You're going to fail me in a public way. With curses and oaths being rained down on your head. You're going to deny me. Publicly three times. Satan is going to attack you. But Peter, I want you to be encouraged. I prayed for you and you will persevere. And that's the difference between the two. The difference is that Peter persevered through his failure. Peter has, is overconfident, said, Lord, I, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. Did you know in Europe, um, in, in the number of the churches in uh, parts of Europe, they don't have a cross on the steeple. They have a rooster. Did you all know that? Not all of them, but some of them. They have a rooster so that when you're walking through town and you look up at the steeple and you see the rooster, it's a reminder. Don't betray Jesus. Let's pray together.